Welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. I am Mark Leonard and over the holiday season we've been bringing out a special series looking at how all the things that bring us together like trade, technology, the internet and migration can also tear us apart. My work has been built on a rising tide of internationalism But in 2016, with Britain voting to leave the European Union and Donald Trump winning the White House in America, that tide went out. And like many people, I felt shipwrecked and spent a long time looking back at my ideas and assumptions of the last couple of decades and wrote a book about how myself and how maybe hopefully other people like me can can try and make sense of this brave new world that, that we're living in. I came to the conclusion that while connectivity and globalization have brought about enormous advances in our civilization, have made our lives much better in innumerable ways, they have also brought a lot of unintended consequences with them, ones with political consequences that we're living through at the moment. And my feeling is that rather than eradicating connectivity's dark side with a new grand design, what we need are new strategies for shaping and surviving our new reality. And that's why this podcast is called The Age of Unpeace, Therapy for Internationalists. In this series, we've been taking a more therapeutic approach to international relations. And I've been talking to a lot of guests who've gone through a similar journey, a parallel journey, over the last couple of decades. And together, we've been discussing things like why the globalist dream of one world didn't always live up to to our expectations of a couple of uh, decades ago, why the world's great powers have been competing with each other rather than working together on COVID-19, climate change, global migration. Will China and America go to war with each other? and all sorts of other big topics which we're living through at the moment. And today, I'm absolutely thrilled to have a very special guest to talk to me about her intellectual journey, Anne-Marie Slaughter. She is the chief executive of New America, a think tank based in Washington, D.C. She was the dean of Princeton University's School of Public and International Affairs from 2002 to 2009. She was the director of policy planning in the State Department from 2009 to 2011. But she's also author of a whole series of books which have helped many people, including myself, to understand and make sense of the world. Her latest book is called Renewal, From Crisis to Transformation in Our Lives, Work and Politics. And it was published in the fall of 2021 and is a wonderful attempt trying to rethink a lot of things from the personal to the political to the geopolitical and before we start talking about that, I just want to talk a bit about your own journey, Amory. I first got to know you, I suppose, at least a couple of decades ago. And um, you had recently written an amazing book about the New World Order, which had an enormous impact both on, on international relations and how a lot of people thought of, about that whole craft, but also on my own thinking. It was the first um but you were the first person I read who who reconceptualized international relations as a, as a series of, of of kind of networks between all sorts of different players who weren't usually thought of as the the architects of of IR, but formed the hidden wiring of of much of our of our everyday lives. 
And at that time, you definitely um, had a very positive and optimistic take on the way that international relations was evolving, moving away from from kind of chessboards, more to what you've conceptualised as the um, the web, exactly, the web. The web. <laughs> <laughs> but you've also lived through quite a lot of profound changes in your own country and a lot of the hopes that we maybe had when we first met about how geopolitics would evolve in other great powers have been challenged over that time. Could you talk a bit about how you see the world now and how it maybe differs from when we first met a couple of decades ago, or what you, or what you, ho- what you hoped would be the case a couple of decades ago? Mm. Well, first of all, I just have to say I'm always thrilled to be in conversation with you. We are intellectual fellow travelers. It's hard for me to believe that we've known each other for a couple of decades because you're, in my mind, still way too young for me to have known you for a couple of decades. Uh, but we we really do see the world in terms of connection. Uh, and I think connection, misconnection, and disconnection. So the way my own thinking has changed, which parallels yours in the age of unpeace to some extent, is that connection is often both good and I would say essential to the human condition. So uh, the other area of work I, I've, I've pursued for the last decade has been about care and uh, belonging and connecting to others as a fundamental part of human nature. And I deeply believe that. Uh, so I've thought about human connection as well as institutional connection, business, government, all the things you and I both write about. That means, though, that I also have come to understand that the problems that are created from too much connection, where there's just like my email, it's just being overwhelmed all the time. That is not a good thing. I am now connected to far too many people in many ways, but also being connected to the wrong people, the wrong people and institutions being connected to one another and then the the tremendous dangers of people being left behind, which which we know, right? Disconnection, misconnection. So I, I still think that connection is the right lens through which we should be seeing the 21st century. But I I agree with you that to to assume it's automatically good is not <laughs> not warranted. I would say also that it is much easier to write about these things than to practice them. And in, in, the, in Renewal, the book that I've just written, as you say, it, a lot of it's about a personal journey. And a lot of that is about a leadership journey where I had lectured about leading collaboratively and leading from the center rather than the top. But after a crisis in my organization, I had to look around and, and realize that I was not always practicing what I preached. The, and that fun, part of the reason for that is that it's really hard to be more horizontal and to work with others in a more horizontal way, that you do need some hierarchy, otherwise nothing ever gets decided. But the balance between hierarchy and collaboration or, or you know, uh, thinking about having to make vertical decisions versus horizontal decisions is a very hard one to strike. That is exacerbated by the tremendous social and demographic change we're experiencing in the United States, and you're certainly experiencing in Britain uh, and then in Europe more broadly, uh, where you have a lot of people who have very different life experiences, different races, ethnicities, backgrounds, 
who are are now assuming their place not only in society but in power structures and a, a big generational difference and challenging us us I'm a baby boomer you're not but to to hear them and to act on what we hear uh, so I think there's sort of two tracks. There's the, how do we think about the world in terms of understanding the bad sides of connection as well as the good? But I also think it's really important to bring that journey home to our individual experience. Because you wrote an article in The Economist recently where you said one of the great mistakes that globalization enthusiasts have made is to embrace the global at the expense of the local. Can you elaborate a bit more on that? Yeah, I've thought a lot about this, particularly in the context of the United States, where we we need much more bottom-up change, but also bottom-up work and, and solutions. I do think the globalization was immediately good for knowledge workers, the chattering classes, people who had the technology and the means to suddenly find themselves part of a global society. It's, it, it really, it is often, you know, whether it's Davos man or airport society, but you and I both know it because we've both lived in it. Uh, and to see all the advantages of that world uh, in terms economically, socially, uh, in terms of, of culture spreading without actually focusing on you know, the, the physical places we've now all been inhabiting since the pandemic. And those two things are not mutually exclusive. And indeed, the, the idea of global, global and local was coined way back in the 1990s. Uh, that This is not crazy. And the very idea of sort of think globally and act uh, locally is back to the 70s. So it's not new. But I do think the excitement and the ability to live in that pretty closed a world of global elites is part of why we're seeing the the tremendous backlash where we're seeing and that is you know a huge challenge for for organizations i mean that's one of the most fascinating aspects of your book on renewal is, is sort of thinking about how we can live together in this very kind of messy situation. And, and you look at that at all these different scales, as you said, from, from as a as somebody leading an organization, but you also were writing those things at a time when American democracy was going through huge travails. And you kind of reflect a lot on that as well. How, how does this question, uh, you know, of connectivity and these sort of connections and, and, and disconnections and misconnections feed into how we think about democracy? Well, of course, democracy depends on strong civil society. And what is strong civil society other than fa the fabric of connection, right? The, the actual relationships that you have with others when you're engaged in collective self-governance. So as we look at it through the United States, what we see are huge geographic divides. Again, you see that in Britain as well between cities and, and uh, rural areas. Some of that is racial, but a lot of it is class. And it's not new, but again, it's exacerbated by technology and, and globalization. 
some of it is also, again, this kind of leaving people behind, which overlaps, but is, is again, a, a, a function of dramatic technological change so that the folks who have the jobs that, are, that benefit from technology can now earn, you know, many multiples of what they could before. And those others are stuck in really dead-end service jobs. And again, there's very little connection between them. And then a third area where I'm seeing this and where New America, my organization, is working very closely, an awful lot of the policies that governments adopt, particularly under, under democratic or, or, or more liberal governments, but also under Republican governments, don't actually deliver for the people they're supposed to deliver for. Because folks like me who sit in think tanks, you know, do research and come up with solutions and get them passed uh, through regulation or, or legislation, but never follow up on whether those actually get to the people they're supposed to help. And that's everything from driver's licenses to unemployment insurance to educational benefits. And there, too, to make the difference, you have to go out and get out of your, get out of the capital, get out of wherever, whatever city you live in, and really work with the folks who are across the country, who are at the other end of a lot of the policies uh, we're adopting. So the question that I think about a lot in the United States is, can we really rebalance between the coasts and the big cities to the medium-sized cities, can we do that in terms of where solutions come from, where ideas come from? It's not to say that, you know, a capital city doesn't have many advantages. And can we do that in the way that we identify public problems and participate in solving them? It's a, it's a, maybe a, a sort of a vision of a thick democracy that is much more connected among the kind of government and the people, but also horizontally across different cities and regions. Great. Well, we've, I think, gone through some of the, the challenges that, that we're facing. I think we now have to enter, get on the couch and, and enter the kind of period of, of thinking about what we can do about it. And I developed this five-step program in the Age of One Piece based around the idea of therapy for, for an era of, of connectivity. It'd be great if we could go through that together. The first step of all therapy programs is facing up to the problem. And you recommend a, a personal and professional practice in your book of, of running towards the criticism. How well are our leaders doing when it comes to admitting that there is a kind of dark side to all of this connectivity and thinking through the challenge to democracy and to, to leadership that you've just been talking about? So this is such an interesting question. Uh, and yes, and I love, I really love your, your therapeutic approach. And again, I, there are course differences between us as individuals and the institutions and the countries we live in, obviously, but there are also similarities. And this is one radical honesty running toward the criticism. <sighs> well, I, the United States is not doing well in terms of the different parties. Now, if I were to talk to the politicians on both sides, they'd say it's politically impossible to run toward the criticism because it's a gotcha culture and the, the way media works, you're going to be immediately flayed. 
Uh, you and I think about even examples of Hillary's apology tour, or uh, when I put things out on social media about facing up to our past, radically, honestly facing up to systemic racism's uh, inequity as a the first step toward moving forward. I immediately get pilloried for yes, being soft, being weak, being unpatriotic. That said. I mean, I fundamentally believe that if you are really honest and confident in your honesty, people will respond to that. And I would rather hear governments stepping up and saying, yep, we made a mistake. We don't know. Um, we're figuring it out. We need help rather than the kind of pretense of, of omniscience. But I'm not an elected politician, and maybe that's why. So this, the second step in the therapy is about establishing healthy boundaries. And I think paradoxically, one of the best ways of uniting the world is to to make people feel safe about the connections between them and to give them a sense of, of being in control. And I kind of argued that we should think about a dividing line between managed and unmanaged togetherness rather than between open and closed societies as a way of thinking about the political challenges at the moment. That obviously has implications in lots of different areas but do you agree with with that as a kind of broad approach and if so where do you think that there is work to be done in terms of how we can create more of a sense of security and safety at a time when there is so much such a thick set of 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 connections which um which tie our societies together and bind them in more widely into the world outside so i i really do like this idea of boundaries and managed and unmanaged togetherness. I do think that's right. As you know, I have long been a proponent of open versus closed, and I still prefer open versus closed to democratic versus undemocratic because I think it it is it gets at what we're the where the problems are, the differences are more than democratic and undemocratic, but I also agree with you that open versus closed is too broad. So I like the overall idea that we're deeply interconnected in different ways, even closed societies are deeply interconnected, and that we need to manage that. It does seem to me that it starts back with a sense of individual agency that so many of us, and us, many different us's here, I think, feel overwhelmed by the information coming at you, by the speed of how much you're supposed to do and how fast things are changing, that, 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 that there is this, that's the, a deep downside to connection. And again, I would use email and inboxes <laughs> as a good example, where people are just starting to say, I just can't do it within organizations independently. So part of what I, I do think we need is a part of this is education. Some of it's just plain, you know, digital literacy, cyber literacy, which seems like a slow, boring, you know, response. But I believe without really good education, we can't govern ourselves. And that education now has to give people the tools to put themselves back in the driver's seat in terms of determining what comes into them and how they respond. You know, you had a choice about what newspapers you you got and you had a choice about reading them and you didn't, you know, and your your entire social life was not connected to your news life as it is is now. So I do think this idea of of 
courses in digital literacy, certainly for all kids. But I think beyond that, I think you can do that at libraries. I think you can bring people together in ways that convince them they can control their information environment. And by controlling their information environment in healthy ways, just like healthy eating, they can then feel more in control of their lives and their futures. I would say that, the, I mean, they still, there's still plenty of problems, right? Climate change and pandemics, et cetera. But I do think a lot of the sense of despair and hopelessness and confusion uh, and languishing, as Adam Grant would put it, comes from the personal sense of being overwhelmed by connection. So that brings me very neatly to the third step, which is to be realistic about what you can control. Yeah. <laughs> In your book, you, you talk, uh, Renewal, you talk about the importance of sharing power and you explained also in an interview recently that sharing power is the only way the US can lead effectively in a world in which global existential problems are more important than great power rivalries. But that does seem to go somewhat against the zeitgeist, which is of hoarding power or at least trying to get it because people feel so overwhelmed in the way that you were talking about earlier. How much is, is that sort of psychological state that people are maybe unrealistic about about what control looks like? And if they thought differently about it, they might feel less powerless uh, if they had a whole different vocabulary around sharing power, around, you know, more horizontal networked um, organisations? Or is that something which is impossible to do to really feel that you're in control if you're bound into these networks, <laughs> which are so complicated that um, the, the sort of agency that we were maybe able to enjoy, or at least some people in some states were able to enjoy 50, 100 years ago, becomes technically infeasible just because of, of how networked the world is, our complicated supply chains, the the kind of different horizontal structures which, which take away the idea of absolute control. Yeah. So this, I think, gets at the real heart of the difference between the way I see the world and I think you see the world and the way the people who run our governments still see the world. And I do really believe that retreating to great power competition, because that's what I think it is. It's a retreat to a simpler world in which a few nations matter and you compete with them and you beat them. And that's how you advance your interests in the world, your allies' interests and safeguard your people is a you know 19th century and 20th century construct. And it it's not that there aren't great powers, but I honestly think that the things that threaten me and my children and the people I care about are not coming from Chinese power. Not that they couldn't, some do, and certainly, you know, the things that Russia does in terms of, of contributing to disinformation, the things we do, the things other nations do that are deeply problematic, and I don't want Russia to invade Ukraine. But the starting point is wrong, but it is a starting point that gives you the illusion of control because it's the world that the folks who run our governments and who are part of the foreign policy world, that's what we've been trained for. And to really embrace the connected world, the networked world. And again, I, I 
I think both these things go side by side. The chessboard and the web go side by side. But I would start from the web. You do have to give up control. Just as you're right, I wrote about sharing power uh, and that actually makes it infinitely easier for me to lead because I have both a sort of co-CEO, but I also have a group of leaders and we, we really do lead collectively. That takes a huge burden off my shoulders. But at the price of my having to really let go, I yes, I can still make the final decision, but I don't chair meetings the same way. In fact, often I don't chair meetings. I let other people really take charge in ways. Now, imagine if the United States did that with NATO, just as one example. We've never come close to doing that in NATO, right? Our definition, the United States definition of kind of being back in the world and leading is we're there. And, you know, that means we're at the table. And yes, we're consulting. And yes, we're engaging. But we are not handing off to other powers or to the EU or to a group of small powers. We don't really share power in the same way. And yet, I think you you have to. And much beyond NATO and other states, and to go back to your geographic point, I think mayors are incredibly important. So are business leaders. So are civic leaders. And if I were talking to the folks who run my own government, they'd say, yes, of course, we know that. That's in our speeches. That's in our strategies. But I would say, yeah, but you see that as the the and, the extra. You know, here is great power competition, and then there's all this, this penumbra of other stuff. I would start with those connections and start with the idea of how widely can I share power, both with other governments and other entities, and how are we going to lead that way? I'll give you one really clear example. I think it is essential to vaccinate the whole world. This is not, this is obvious for all of us. For us to vaccinate the whole world, the United States and the EU, other NATO countries have to go to China and Russia and say, okay, how are we going to do this together? And they're going to have to let China take some credit for Sinovac going into wherever it's going and Russia with its vaccine with Sputnik. And we're not going to like a lot of that. And their vaccines may not be as good as ours, but that's what it's going to take. And you'd have to share credit and share power. And we're not willing to do that. So that takes me to the the sort of fourth step, which is um, to take care of yourself. And I think in, in many ways, the mirror image of what you're talking about in terms of sharing power internationally is being willing to to share it nationally. And in your book, you kind of talk a lot about the demographic tensions which are threatening to tear America into competing tribes that don't want to share power with each other, that just want total victory. And you have this kind of image of of, of an alternative, of a plurality nation. Can you talk a bit more about that and, and maybe also talk about how that concept might be adapted beyond the US? Is it something that could be relevant to Europeans as well? Oh, yes. So, you know, sometime in the 2040s, the United States will move from being a white majority nation for 400 odd years, 250 as a, as a country, to being a plurality nation. There will not be any majority. I don't call it majority minority because if there's not a majority, there's not a minority. We are pluralities. I think that's a great thing. It is a huge change. It will happen in the U.S. in the mid-2040s or so, and it's happening already, obviously, with younger people. It's going to happen in Britain in the 2050s and in Europe more broadly over the rest of the century. So this is true for all of us. And then the question is, 
can we live up to the values we profess, which are universalist? They are all human beings are created equal. We have equal rights, but we don't practice it that way. And it's a lot easier to do that when you're more homogeneous than when you're as heterogeneous as we're becoming. And yet the diversity that that brings, the collision of cultures and ideas, as turbulent as that can be, can also be a source of great innovation. And to come back to your point, tremendous connection to the rest of the world if, and I would take take a leave from your book here, if managed right. So this brings us to the kind of final question, which is maybe related to that, which is that, you know, I think we know from human relationships that there's a single principle, which is the key to any kind of legitimacy, um, and that's consent. And that is also, I think, true uh, if you go beyond the the individual level up to the kind of national level and the the global level as well is something which many people feel has been absent from the way that the world has has developed in in recent times you're quite optimistic in your book that americans can find a, a new national narrative grounded in in the power of being the world's most diverse nation and that it could be able to to embrace a new and more critical patriotism that break, that binds people together but isn't blind to to the power imbalances and the tragedies of the past. How do you think that you can get consent for that idea of a plurality nation? Because at the moment, you can see it's an, a notion that divides as, as much as it attracts, I think, within the current political environment in the US. Yeah. And I, I mean, <laughs> I'm professionally optimistic, partly because I believe that we are not going to succeed unless we have a positive vision. We're never the uh, Michael Gerson just wrote a spectacular piece talking about how, you know, the right is afraid that they're losing the country and the left is afraid that they're losing our democracy and both are ideologies of prophesied loss. We need an ideology of prophesied gain. We need a vision that people can be inspired by. And I, I believe in that. I'm not crazy. I'm deeply worried about whether we are capable of getting there. But I do think, and this goes back to what we've been talking about, you know, personal and national, at the root of all this is deep fear and deep ignorance and ignorance of one another. You know, I, until very recently, I spent all my working life almost entirely with other white people. I had the principles of working with others, but I did not share my days. I did not have close friends who were African-American or Latina, Latinx or other, other really came from different backgrounds. And I really didn't hear what they wanted to tell me, partly because I was scared to, partly because I was guilty, partly because I couldn't handle it. Yet when you actually cross those barriers very at a very human level, you discover that it's not so different than the experience of many Irish Americans when they came to this country. African Americans are, are different because of, of slavery. But even there, there's a lot that binds us as well as really separates us if we have the courage to face it and to, and to face our fear. And you know, all therapy depends on that. You gotta name whatever it is that's bothering you and you have to have the courage to face it. And I think people, if approached in terms of, you know, you can do this, you have the courage to do this, and we as a nation, this is part of what makes us great, I believe we can. But I I think we have to think this way much more broadly uh, and act on it. 
Great. Well, that's unfortunately all we have time for today, but I think it's quite a hopeful way to, to end the podcast. I'd like to thank my special guest, Anne-Marie Slaughter, for, for joining me for this fascinating conversation. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're using to, to listen to it on, whether it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any other platform that you've used. And while you're there, feel free to give us a positive review and a five-star rating because that will help um, <laughs> bring other people's attention to the podcast. We'll put links up to Amory's book and um, some of the other uh, episodes that we've done on our website at uh, ecfr.eu slash podcast. But for now, from Amory Slaughter and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher for this podcast miniseries are Swancha Green and Lucy Halpenthal, and the editor of this week's episode is Marlene Riedler. Mm-hmm.